0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, this Advent, we decided to stay in the letter to the Hebrews and linger here in this passage that bridges chapter 4 and chapter 5, as the author tells us of Jesus, our great high priest. And each week, we've been highlighting a, a different aspect of Jesus' priesthood communicated in the text. We've been focusing on one particular thing each week that we find in this larger passage. And it's like turning a gem or a precious stone in your hands. You see the whole thing, but you see it from different angles. We're looking at our great high priest Jesus from different angles so that we can see his beauties and his wonders that much more clearly. It's so that we'll trust that Jesus actually is better, like we've been saying for months, so that we'll trust that Jesus really is the Messiah, the scriptures declare him to be. And so the first week, we really focused on the very end of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where we saw that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. And then last week, we looked at how uh, Jesus, in verses 1 through 3, really is like, seen to be our gentle high priest. But this week, as we really focus primarily on verses 4 through 6... We're going to see that Jesus is our exalted high priest. And though it's only a small number of verses, there is a lot to cover here. The author of Hebrews is going deep. And so I want to make my main point very, very clear. My main point this morning is this. Because Jesus is our exalted high priest in heaven, he provides us an inextinguishable present hope. Because he's our exalted high priest in heaven, he provides us an inextinguishable present hope. That's what I want us to know this morning. That's what I want us to believe this morning. And so to work through our text, we're going to look at it under three headings. The proof of Jesus' priesthood, the glory of Jesus' priesthood, and the hope of Jesus' priesthood. Proof, glory, and hope. Let's start with number one, the proof of Jesus' priesthood. So, uh, for the last few weeks, the text has been telling us that Jesus is our great high priest, just kind of asserting it. And, and really, the argument dates back to chapter 2, when the author uh, tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so, Jesus' priesthood is a dominant theme in the whole letter. Starts in chapter 2, runs at least explicitly till chapter 10. And so that's nine of the 13 chapters of Hebrews is dominated by the theme of Jesus, our high priest. And in our passage here, to present Jesus as the great high priest, the author tells us about, a bit about what priests actually do. And particularly what high priests did, and that's verses really 1 through 3, 1 through 4. Part of their job, uh, their God-given job description was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's verse one. The role of the priest was to clear the people of their guilt so that they could dwell in proximity to God. See, there's a misconception. We often think that God can't dwell amongst sinful people. No, no, no. It's the other way around. It's us sinful people that have an allergy to God's holiness. We need to be made clean to be able to dwell in his proximity. But as we saw last week, The priests were broken humans as well because they came after Adam. They were broken people just like the rest of us. And so uh, they, they, they were gentle, as we saw last week, but they weren't gentle willingly like Christ is gentle. They were gentle because they had to be. They realized that they're sinners and they're broken too. They were sinners just like those they were making sacrifices for. And so when they came to offer sacrifices, they had to first offer sacrifices for their own sin. And we talked about this a bit last week, where on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest would go in, and first he'd offer a bull as a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his household. And then a few verses later, we read that he'd go in and he'd offer a goat on behalf of the sins of the people. The high priest was a flawed human, just like the rest of us, which means there was no true hope in him. No true hope in what he was doing. He was just a shadow of the real thing. And so the author presents Jesus to us as the object that the shadow is outlining. Look at verses 4 and 5. And no one takes this honor for himself, But only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. See, the author has been telling us what priests do, but in these few verses in chapter 5, the author of Hebrews tells us how Jesus' priesthood is even possible. One of the things that verses 4 and 5 shows us is that priests did not appoint themselves. Verse 4 says that high priesthood was actually something that was given by God. Aaron is said to have the honor once he's on, only once he's called by God. And you get that calling in Exodus 28. But see, for the people of Israel, uh, the priests weren't like elected officials that could come from anywhere in the nation. No, priests came from a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. But Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. Good job, class. Judah. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. So this this creates a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? And that's why the author is giving such focused attention to this detail because he realizes that this is an issue. In Israel, the priests were Levites, and they didn't come from anywhere else, but Jesus came from Judah. He came from the tribe that produced kings. And, And this can be a little bit tricky, especially if you're new to Christianity, but I think we can think about it like this. Okay, in, in the Harry Potter series, you know, in the Harry Potter series, you've got the four houses that make up Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. You've got Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw. Did someone just cheer for Slytherin? <laughs> Slytherin, yeah. Okay. The Levites, though, the Levites were like Hufflepuffs. You know, they got good things going for them. They have a champion in the Triwizard Tournament. But we all know that the chosen one is coming from Gryffindor. The one who would defeat Voldemort, the descendant of the house of Slytherin, whose house is marked by a serpent, would be the one who descended from the house of Gryffindor, the one whose house is marked by a lion. J.K. Rowling wasn't really subtle with this. And so Jesus is a Gryffindor. The Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah the tribe that produces the kings of Israel. That's what all of the prophecies said. So how can he also be a priest? If he's a priest, the author has to prove it. He can't just say it, right? We like to think that if we just say things, they're right. But he realizes that can't be true because a priest in Aaron's order had to come from Levi. And that's where verse six comes in. Verse six says, as he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 6 is a citation of Psalm 110, verse 4. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And so you'd be really well, you'd do really well to just familiarize yourself with it. Jesus himself refers to it frequently in the gospel accounts. And this verse in particular is quoted three more times in the coming chapters. But Psalm 110 is what's known as a Messianic psalm. It's a royal psalm. These are psalms that told the Israelites of the coming Messiah, God's coming king. What's he going to be like? These are the psalms that told us. But right there, in the middle of Psalm 110, a psalm about the coming king, the text says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so God tells us that his royal Messiah is going to be a priest, a real priest, from outside of the tribe of Levi. But that prompts a new question for us, doesn't it? Who is Melchizedek? See, in Genesis 14, Abraham, whose then name was Abram, um, had just rescued his nephew Lot and he was on his way back home. And the text tells us that Abram meets a man named Melchizedek. And the text says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Now, uh, Melchizedek comes up several times in the next few chapters, and so if this doesn't feel like a sufficient explanation for who he is, just know that we're probably going to cover it again. Um, but we do need to know a few things about who he is. From And we can, we can pull them from this verse here. First, Melchizedek's name means my king is righteousness. So his name means my king is righteousness. Second, he's the king of Salem, and Salem is the word that means peace. It's also the root word that makes up Jerusalem. Third, he's a priest of God most high, and so he's not only a king, he's a king priest. And fourth, he only shows up in the text for a few verses here in Genesis 14. And in the way that he's presented, there are no kings that come before him, and there are no kings that come after him. So, and so the text is presenting him in a way as if he has an unending kingship. And so we can answer the question, who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, who reigns in the city of peace. He's a priest of God Most High with a seeming eternal reign. And I mean, come on, he shows up with bread and wine. But in Psalm 110, God swears that his Messiah is going to be a priest in this order. And now in Hebrews 5, the author is saying that that priest that God promised in the Psalms is Jesus. The author of Hebrews has done his work to show us how the Bible tells us that Jesus is not only a king, but a priest. He's saying there's room here for Jesus to be a true priest of God in Israel, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi. And so Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But his role, the way that he carries out his priesthood, is to be the fulfillment of the ministry given to Aaron, to atone for the sins of the people. And so the author has resolved this problem for us. Jesus is truly a priest. He's the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Of Melchizedek. And so that's point number one, the proof of Jesus' priesthood. Point number two, the glory of Jesus' priesthood. Um, one of the slogans during the founding of the United States was, no taxation without representation. And of course, the slogan was a statement about their frustration with the British government, right? The government was imposing taxes on the colonists without allowing for any of the colonists to represent their own interests At the points where the decisions were made. And so this was their protest. They felt it was a denial of their rights. And while this is a fairly distant, this is fairly distant information that we all learn in high school during our American history classes, um, the sentiment of it is still pervasive today. We see it in sports, we see it in entertainment, in politics, in the workplaces, you name it, the sentiment's everywhere. And I think what this shows us is that we don't only want to be represented, we ache for it. We, we need it. We feel an, an, an internal angst about our imperfect representation in the highest places. And so oftentimes we end up trying to just represent ourselves ourselves. We exalt ourselves above others so that we can be sure that our interests are attended to. If I don't do it, who's going to do it? But I think what we all realize is that we are unsuitable to be our own representatives. We, despite what the world's telling us, we are not enough. And so we need someone to represent us at the highest places on our behalf. And our text today... Um, has some meaningful words in it to describe Jesus' priesthood. Aaron is said to have the honor of the priesthood given to him by God, in verse 4. And the text says that Jesus did not exalt himself, or that word could be glorify himself, as a high priest, but was appointed to it. And that's in verse 5. And as you can imagine, the, the author, he's using his words on purpose. Because he's trying to make a point. Back in chapter 2, he began to argue for Jesus' priesthood from Psalm 8. And if it feels like we're incorporating a lot of the Old Testament into this, that's that's just because we are. Um, It's been said before that the best commentary on the Old Testament is the book of Hebrews. And so we really just need to incorporate the Old Testament. But according to Psalm 8, God created human beings. He, He created Adam, and he created Adam to rule creation on his behalf. And Psalm 8 verse 5 says that God crowned humanity with glory and honor to bring the world into subjection. Adam was given glory and honor so that he might rule God's creation well. But what we need to see is that at the very beginning, God had established his perfect human, his son, Adam, to be his kingly representative here on the earth. But this language of glory and honor, which which the psalmists attribute to the first human, the author of Hebrews is now tying into the office of priest, the high priesthood that Jesus now occupies. And so the text is telling us that at the beginning, Adam was not just a son. He was not just a priest. He was not just a king, but he was the son-priest king. He was what humanity was meant to be. But in his fall, in his sin, in his failure, he tarnished the image of God in him. He he tarnished his sonship. He he failed his priestly duties and he forfeited his throne as king. And you see, Adam, he represented us perfectly in the garden. So much so, That with his disobedience, our representation became poor and it became broken and it became soiled. And now, because our representative was removed from his garden home with God, so were we. And it's been said that we have been living subhuman lives ever since. None of us, even the best of us, even the one with the best life that you can imagine is living a life that is less than what God has intended for it. And since then, all of humanity has been looking for their, that person to come make everything right. Because in, in their expulsion, when God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he, he, he didn't do it without hope. He made them a promise. He said to Adam and Eve that one day, there would be one coming who is going to set everything right again. One of their offspring, the perfect son, priest, king, would come, and he'd set right everything that they've made wrong. And since then, we've been looking for that person. Who's going to be the one to come and make us right with God? Who's going to be the one to come and rule God's creation perfectly again? Who's going to come? Who's going to be that perfect offspring, the perfect son? But as generations of people were born, lived, and died, no one ever lived up to the mark. Just from this morning, from what we've looked at already, Aaron was a son of God in Israel through Levi, and he was a priest, but he wasn't a king. David was a king of Israel, and he was a son of God through Judah, but he wasn't a priest. Melchizedek, even, was a king and a priest, but the text doesn't tell us that he was a son in God's promised line. So human history continued to long. We continued to ache. We continued to wonder, is this son, priest, king ever going to come? The Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And the Gospel writer goes to detailed lengths to show us that one had come who was in the promised line of David. David. One had come who was in the promised line of Judah. And Luke's genealogy goes as far back to show us that one had come who was in the promised line of Adam, the son of God. The Lord Jesus was the son, priest, king that all of creation had been groaning for. Our perfect representative was here. That's what we remember at Advent. That perfect representative had come. He had arrived. And in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus went about doing the things that sons and priests and kings ought to do. Very scandalously, he very often prayed uh, to the Father. He prayed regularly about his intimate life with the Father as a son might. He went around not only healing people, not only raising them from the dead, but he had the audacity to claim that he was forgiving the sins of the people. As he embarked upon the week leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus, the King of Righteousness, rode down the Mount of Olives to his city of peace. And he wept. Because they didn't recognize that their King had come. These people had been waiting. They had been aching for centuries for this Messiah to come. And when he finally did, they missed him. But in the plan of God, his perfect son, priest, king, came for this very purpose. God's true son was forsaken on the cross so that we who have rejected our sonship could be embraced again. God's true priest, who didn't need to sacrifice for his own sin, was sacrificed for our sin so that we could be made clean by faith. God's true king was exalted first to the wooden arms of a cross so that we who deserved death could reign with him forever. But though Christ died on Friday, he rose triumphantly on Sunday to establish his eternal reign. And now for all of those who trust in him by faith, he perfectly represents you before the Father. And and if this is true, if we really believe this, then why do we spend so much time trying to exalt ourselves? Why why do we spend so much time trying to glorify ourselves? Why do we feel like we have to represent ourselves as if no one else is going to? Right? The text even says Jesus didn't even exalt himself. The gospel of God's grace should not promote conceit. There is no room for arrogance in God's kingdom. There is no room for self-exaltation or the necessity to represent me. The gospel of God's grace pushes us to a place of humility. We believe in a humble, exalted priest who stands before God on our behalf. Hebrews later is going to say it like this. He says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what it took for our sin to be wiped away. It took the perfect son-priest-king going low and dying for his enemies and then calling those enemies to himself by his spirit. If Jesus Christ is our exalted great high priest whose path to the throne involved going low in the suffering of the cross, then the glory of Christ's priesthood frees us to be humble. It free, we're, we're freed to count others' needs as more significant than our owns, as Paul puts it in Philippians. We're freed from the burden of representing ourselves, of making ourselves known because the Father knows us perfectly in Christ. This is the glory of Jesus' priesthood. Third, and finally, the hope of Jesus' priesthood. In the back half of verse 5, Uh, The author cites Psalm 2, which for most of us probably sounds fairly familiar, right? The citation reads, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, And this is a direct quote from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is about the reign of God's coming Messiah. That even though the nations would rage and the people plot against him, God's son, his king, would come and receive the nations as his heritage. And he would reign from Zion, God's capital city. And when we hear this verse, if we're familiar with it, probably many of us think about Jesus' baptism or, or, or we think about his transfiguration because we read some of these words there as well. But this citation of Psalm 2, as the author of Hebrews is using it, is not about those things. This is about the resurrection the Apostle Paul makes it really plain in his opening to the letter to the Romans and when he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so while these words were spoken over Jesus at his baptism and at his transfiguration they were true of him then but he most fully embodied them when he got up from the grave See Adam was the firstborn son of humanity but when Jesus rose from the dead he became the firstborn son of the new humanity of the new creation And therefore, by his resurrection, Jesus was qualified to be exalted to God's right hand with all of the honor and all of the glory that was originally intended for Adam. That's why Jesus says after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. That's why the Apostle Paul can write in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. After his resurrection, he is the reigning messianic son that Psalm 2 describes. And now verse 6 says that he reigns forever as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 is going to go on to say, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, if you've believed in Jesus as your exalted high priest, then he lives to make you clean. He lives to represent you perfectly in heaven forever. How does this meet us? One author recently put it like this. He said, the genealogy of Jesus includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he's come for. And we could say that Jesus' genealogy also includes the beat up. It includes the worn down. It includes those without hope. Those that are ready to quit. Maybe you feel hopeless right now. Maybe this is a season of hopelessness. Maybe you feel too far gone, too cut off, too broken, too whatever. Friend, I need you to hear this. Jesus came for you. He bled and he died and he rose for you. And right now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father for you. And he won't quit. He won't stop. He won't give up on you. Everyone else is going to give up on you. You will give up on you. Jesus never will. And this is the steadfast anchor of our hope that has entered beyond the veil. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that we were saved into the hope of the resurrected Christ. And he continues, now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Listen, I know life is hard. I know it can be difficult. I know that it has its challenges. But listen, biblically speaking, hope is not bound up in the things that we can see and the things that we can touch. That's too flimsy, Those things can be taken away from you. Hope can't be lost in an election cycle. It can't be lost when you find out it's cancer. It can't be lost when you miscarry. It can't be lost when your marriage hits a rough patch. It can't be lost when he leaves. It can't be lost when you fail again. It can't be lost when you can't find work. With Christ exalted in heaven, hope cannot be lost. True hope, biblical hope, stands upon the sturdy foundation of the resurrected and exalted Christ. True hope says in faith, I know that I can't put my hands on it now, but I also know that one day I will. Yes, there's an abundance of things wrong in this world, but the hope of the empty tomb and the hope of an exalted Christ is that one day, With all authority, he's going to come back and he's going to make it all right again. If Jesus is our great high priest, exalted at the right hand of God the Father, with all authority in his hands, then friends, hear me, we have a secure hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.